Late Night City, Beyond the Dark. Hello there, Roy. Oh, Simon, it's always a pleasure to speak to you, but for the benefit of people who don't know who Simon Entwistle is, tell us a little bit about yourself, if you would, please. Right, Roy. Um, I'm a tour guide, uh, with a difference, really. I conduct a variety of ghost tours all over Yorkshire, Lancashire and Cumbria. Um, Some of these tours are walking tours and some are by coach, but they're all um, pretty well attended and it's a a job I really do enjoy, Roy. Right. How do you fall into doing that kind of occupation? Well, um, what now seems like a million years ago, I I joined the army and I was based in York for a while. And um, as listeners will know, York is one of those haunted towns in Great Britain, have eight different ghost walks there. And I went on one ghost walk in 1981 and got hooked. And I'm returning back to my native part of Lancashire, a little town called Clitheroe. I started what's called the Clitheroe Ghost Murder and Mystery Walk and have gone from strength to strength really since that period of time. Right. Seeing as we are establishing your credentials here, is it not true that Simon Entwistle once appeared on the David Letterman show? Um, a million years ago I did. Um, it was nothing to do with, um, with the ghost tours. I um, had a strange hobby where I used to make sound effects by mouth alone, Roy. Um, <laughs> trains, galloping horses. I can quickly do a train for you if you yeah, like. Yeah, yeah, go on, go on, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I'll tell you what, let, let's scrub the, the, the paranormal stuff. Let's just do some more of these. Yeah, galloping horse, yeah. yeah. A galloping horse, here we go. <laughs> One of my real favourites, Roy, a dentist drill. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> what a horrible, horrible sound that is. <laughs> One more, go on. I, see, I, I'm, I'm hooked on this kind of stuff. Okay. I, I haven't heard this kind of stuff since Percy Edwards used to do well, animal impressions years ago. You know, way back in the 80s, I think, I think everyone was doing it, really. And I, I even got on Woody Believe Beatles about, uh, which is quite a bit of fun, right. really. And things like That's Life, uh, BBC TV's That's Life, Beatles About, Blue Peter. I've got a Blue Peter badge, would you believe, for the right. old. Uh, but, um, yeah, sound effects. Uh, well, we're on radio. Do you remember the, the good old days of Radio Caroline? Right. And yeah, do you remember yeah. trying to find it, Roy, on the medium wave? It would sound a bit like this. <whistles> and the basic voice about... Oh, people who are tuning in to what is usually an unsettling, spooky part of the week and will be a little bit bemused as to what's going on. They might think they've travelled to a parallel universe with the way <laughs> things are going on at the moment. But anyway, listen, I enjoyed that. Thank you very much indeed. My, my pleasure, Roy. What I do tend to do on the coach tours is put a few of those sounds actually into the stories. So really, you've got like a one-man radio play in some ways. <laughs> Indeed, yeah, right. Listen, don't be giving people any ideas here that they can save money because they might kind of employ your services to do a number of people's jobs. <laughs> but anyway, so, Simon, obviously we've established a little bit about you there, yep. and in particular this business, the tours that you do. Now, the tours that you do, they're not fabrication. They are, these are stories based on fact, are they not? 
Very much so, Roy. Um, I get requests from local authorities, would you believe, to conduct guided tours. And rather than just read about, shall we say, regional ghost stories, I tend to meet people. And one of my favorite stories uh, is a story of a chap called Bill Morris. Uh, Bill came from uh, the Lancashire market town of Darwin, quite near Blackburn. And uh, Bill, uh, you can always tell when someone's pulling your leg. You can also, can also tell when someone's being very, very honest. And Bill mm. really was honest with this story. He mentioned as a young lad, he lived quite near the East Lancashire Railway. And as a young boy, he'd watch the trains go past his, um, his garden fence. And he'd wave to the engine drivers. They'd, they'd make that customary <laughs> with a whistle as the train went past. And uh, he told his mum and dad, when I leave school, I'm going to work in the railways. He left school at 14 and got a job as a wheel tapper. And his job was to tap the wheels of the trains as they came into the platforms. And if they had a dull ring to them, a dull sound, they were cracked and he'd report them. At the age of 18, he became a fireman on a Black 5 locomotive. And then just after his 21st birthday, he got a job as an engine driver. And he worked from London Euston right up to Glasgow, up and down the London Midland Scottish line. In the summer of 1957, he was transferred to his beloved East Lancashire Railway. And as he went past his mum and dad's house, he would actually pull the whistle himself. <whistles> as the train went past the, the garden gate there. On a beautiful summer's day, he was making his way uh, from Carlisle down towards Manchester. And to get to Manchester, he had to go through what's called the Suff Tunnel. He remembered it was a very beautiful summer's day. And as he glanced into the field at the entrance to the Suff Tunnel, he saw a little boy behind the fencing with straw-coloured hair just waving. And, of course, Bill waved back and pulled the whistle three times. <whistles> and then the train went straight into the tunnel. He saw this young lad every single day for the next five weeks. The little boy was always waiting at exactly the same area, and Bill would wave to him as he went past. Beautiful summer's day, uh, as they're making their way down towards the sub-tunnel, he glanced to the right and saw the little boy with the straw-coloured hair in a different part of the field. He was actually running towards the fence, but running through sleeping sheep. And Bill was quite shocked. His hair rose on the back of his head as he saw the little lad running through these sheep as if the sheep didn't even, even know he was there. He elbowed the fireman. Did you see that? Did you see that? No, mate. Too busy shoveling. The train went into the tunnel. They got to Manchester. They went to the Buffy Bar in Manchester Station. And the fireman said, Bill, you're right. Quiet. What's wrong, mate? What's wrong? Well, that little lad in the field, he was running through sleeping sheep. I saw him. No, no, you're seeing, you're seeing things, said the fireman. Well, they uh, got the freight on the engine and made their way back up north. And as they headed towards Darwin, they came to the Manchester end of the tunnel. And they saw a red light. Uh, Bill slowed the engine down and noticed that the light was being held aloft by a police officer. Uh, Bill stopped the engine and shouted down to the officer, uh, What's wrong, officer? Oh, terrible, terrible. Being a young lad killed at the entrance of the tunnel. Oh, officer, that's terrible. It is, it is. His brother was killed there five years ago. We just told the parents this afternoon. Oh, officer, that, that's terrible. Word filtered down that the tunnel was now okay to take the engine through, and they set off through the tunnel. As they came out on the Darwin side into bright, bright sunshine, Bill glanced to his right and saw the little boy with the straw-coloured hair holding the hand of a much taller boy. They both waved 
and as Bill turned round to wave back at them, they both vaporised. Uh, Bill elbowed the fireman. Did you see that? Did you see that? No, mate, too busy shoveling. Bill never forgot that day. He said he never saw them again, but he noticed that both of them just literally, as they waved, just materialised into thin air. Wow. That is incredible. It, it's, it's a great story, uh, uh, that, Roy, but you can always tell when someone is, is being very yeah, honest. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, no, yeah, I mean, because, it, you know, as well you know, Sam, I've done lots of this yes. over the years, and, you know, it's, it, it become, you become kind of accustomed to, you know, you get that kind of horse manure scent about when people aren't telling the truth. Very but, much so, You know, yeah. and, and, and I know your character, obviously, so if this guy said that that happened then, you know, I, I, who am I to say that he didn't? You know, that's incredible, that. But, I mean, it, it is, you know, when, when we start talking about um, ghost tales and things like that and things that people see, it is incredible. Like, you just described the man saying, did you see that? Because it's almost as if it, you've seen something that's completely irrational, completely illogical, and yet you're just saying, oh, did you see that? I mean, I, I've, you know, on the things, the strange things that I've encountered, you're kind of stuck for words, really, aren't you? And, you know, some, some people rationalise it straight away, don't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a firm believer, Roy, a firm believer that there is life after this one. Uh, I'm not a medium myself. I'm not a psychic. I'm certainly not uh, a clairvoyant. But I do believe there is life after this one. Right. I'm absolutely convinced, Roy, really. And uh, um, a classic... Uh, situation that came to my um, attention a few years ago when I met a, another guy, a smashing lad, the name of, uh, of Bill, and uh, no relation to our, our other Bill, yeah. actually, but mm. uh, he's called Billy Lakin, lovely guy, and he was haunted by a wartime horror, horror that happened to him. He was um, basically in the beats of Dunkirk, 1940, uh, waiting to be evacuated, and uh, his platoon got back to Clitheroe. He was part of the Clitheroe Territorial Army, and um, his orders were to get back to the parish church office, the old TA hall, which he did do. And out of the 57 young lads that went with him, only 19 got back. And they were told there and then to make it the platoon numbers to platoon strength once again and had a recruitment drive. Uh, now, in World War II, if you were over 18, you were conscripted. If you were 17, you could join up. But you, had to be, you had to have your mother and father's consent. Um, Billy Lakin was 19, he met a young lad who was 17, and this young boy said, Oh, Bill, go and see my mum and dad. Uh, tell him to sign this consent form, what to fight for my country. Uh, Bill said this young boy's parents, and they said, Sorry, he's our only son, he's only 17, the war could be over next year anyway. Oh, please, mum, please, dad, please sign the form, want to fight for my country. He pestered and pestered them, and they gave in on one condition, that condition being that Bill would look after him like a brother. And he swore he would do. So uh, they signed the consent form. The young lad joined up and became a member of the Clitheroe Territorial Army. They were sent overseas to the beautiful Greek island of Crete to make it the garrison there, which consisted of British, Australian and New Zealand armed forces. 21st of May 1941, the Germans launched a highly disciplined airborne invasion of Crete. The fighting was quite ferocious. In the fighting, the Germans took the island uh, due to superior equipment and total air cover, uh, in the fighting, the Clither platoon lost nine men, including the 17-year-old young boy. Bill was captured. He was deeply, deeply upset by the death of this young lad and blamed himself entirely. Uh, throughout his prison war captivity, he wrote letters through the British Red Cross to this young boy's parents in Clitheroe, just begging their forgiveness. And they wrote back and said, we do not hold you responsible for the death of our son. Please 
do not hold yourself responsible. But Bill did. And when he got back to England in 1945, he thought of this young lad every day. But things were going to change because he was about to experience a very, very paranormal event that took place on Christmas Eve, the 24th of December, 1968, when he went to the old TA Hall to watch the Clitheroe Amateur Operatic Society's Christmas play. He was the last person to leave the building. He stood outside and lit a cigarette. As he smoked the cigarette, he thought of how the platoon had met at the old Civic Hall all those years ago. He extinguished the cigarette with his foot and then walked down a little ginnel by the side of the building and heard his name being called. Hey, Bill! Hey, Bill! Hey, Billy! He turned round and saw the ghost of the young lad in British Army uniform. The first thing Bill noted was this young man hadn't aged. He looked exactly as he had done in Crete in 1941. The boy put up his ghostly arm and shouted, or should I say, spoke very softly, Bill, Bill, don't worry about me, Bill. I'm fine. Bill, don't worry. I'm fine. With that, Billy's knees gave way. He knelt on the cobblestones next to the old civic hall, and in his own words, he bellowed like a wounded animal. The tears streamed down his face. As he looked up, the boy turned, smiled, and vaporised. Bill got to his feet, uh, deeply traumatised, as you can imagine, and walked through Clitheroe past the happy Christmas Eve revellers. The last thing Bill felt was celebrating anything. He got into bed and fell into a deep sleep. In the following morning, Christmas Day, 1968, he was welcomed by the church bells of St. Mary's, St. Paul's and St. Peter's, and got out of bed and felt a lot better in himself. He made his way to the bathroom and caught his reflection in the shaving mirror. He looked again and again and saw a change in his facial appearance. He noted for the first time since 1941, he was actually smiling and he felt he'd been truly forgiven for the death of this young boy in Crete all those years ago. As Bill left my house that day, he said, Simon, I never believed in ghosts until I saw one with my own eyes. And mm. they're Bill's words, not mine. Wow, that is incredible. And it's difficult to comprehend what it would be like to actually see that, because obviously that emotional attachment, like you mentioned, that he had as a comrade of his during the war. Um, you mentioned earlier in the piece about in your early days or in York and York being a particularly haunted oh, yeah. part of yeah. the world. But where you live up in Lancashire, there's a place called Salmsbury Hall, and that has quite an extensive list of sightings, does it not? You're quite right, Roy. Um, Salmsbury Hall, over 800 years old. Uh, lots of documents there which confirm events that took place. Um, in those 800 years, Salmsbury Hall has experienced three murders three suspicious deaths and one terrible, terrible, uh, tragic event uh, involving uh, the story of uh, Lady Dorothea Southworth. Uh, first of all, the Southworth family, they lived at Salisbury Hall for a good 300 years and they were ardent Catholics and refused to accept any other religion apart from Catholicism. Uh, the family wouldn't even talk to Protestants. They hated them with a vengeance. Uh, Lady Dorothea Southworth was born in the hall in 1595, and just after her 18th birthday, she had a walk into the forest surrounding Salisbury Hall. Uh, there she came across a handsome young lad called De Horton. Uh, De Horton came from another very, very wealthy family from a place called Horton Towers, about six miles from Salisbury Hall. When he saw young Dorothea, and when she saw him, it was literally love at first sight. Um, 
Dorothea made her way back to the hall and told her father. He was absolutely livid. We are Catholics. They are Protestants. You'll never see him again, lass. If you do, I'll have you sent to live with the nuns of the south of France. He'll never take your hand in marriage. He's not welcome. You will never see him again. We are Catholics. He's a Protestant. He's not welcome in my home. If anything, this threat seemed to fuel their love. In the dead of night, she would leave her bed, make way across the manicured lawn to Sarsby Hall and into the forest and meet young D. Horton. Her father warned her for the last time, if you continue, lass, with this relationship, I will have you banished. You will live with the nuns in the south of France. You will never, ever see him again. If you do, you know the consequences. He then told her two brothers, right, boys, tonight, do what's necessary. On a beautiful moonlit night, Dorothea left her bed. She made her way across the long gallery at Sarsby Hall, down the twisting staircase, and across the manicured lawns, and into the forest. On the fringe of the forest was young Dee Horton. When he saw her, he very politely bowed. He knelt down, he affectionately kissed her hand, and reached into his pocket and produced a huge engagement ring. Oh, Dorothea, Dorothea, will you end this heartache and become my wife? A huge smile came across her face, and she gratefully accepted his proposal. They hugged each other in the moonlight, and then they heard the sounds of footsteps. Out of the forest appeared Dorothea's two brothers. They cruelly, cruelly murdered young B. Horton right in front of her. Dorothea's heart was snapped in two. The tears streamed down her face as she was dragged uh, back into the hall. And the following morning, her cruel father had her sent to Marseille to live with the nuns uh, in the south of France. On arriving there, that poor girl never ate again, never slept again, and she died of a broken heart. That's when the famous sightings of the White Lady of Sarsby have taken place, always in between the horse chestnut and the yew tree, and occasionally in the main hall. Many people have seen her over the years, and there's been many books written about her, but in 1926, a most unusual find took place in the grounds of Sarsby Hall. The road next to the hall was widened to take more heavier traffic and the engineers put a herringbone drainage system across the lawn to Sarsby Hall. One of those trenches went in between the horse chestnut and the yew tree and they found two feet beneath the surface a skeletal foot of an adult male. More soil was taken away and Preston CID arrived and they discovered that the body had been there for quite a few years. It was obviously a murder scene but they found one of the fingers a huge ring. The rings were removed, carefully inspected, and had the engraving Dorothea D. Horton. It was none other than young D. Horton who had been murdered all those years ago, which would explain why the White Lady of Sarsby will always stop over the grave of the only boy that ever showed her any love, any warmth, and any affection. There are at least four volumes written about the White Lady, Roy, and we'd be here all mm. night just talking about yeah. it. I'll tell you what we're going to do, if this is okay, Sam. I just want to take a little break. Of and course. then I know that there are two fascinating stories. You've given us the backstory to, uh, to the White Lady there, but there are two incredible stories that I've heard you tell before that I want you to share with people on the show uh, this evening, if that's okay. Of course. You're listening to Late Night City with me, Roy Bassnett. It's Beyond the Dark, our weekly look at the world of the paranormal. My guest on the phone is historian Simon Entwistle talking about some strange stuff, and that will continue in a matter of minutes. Welcome back. It is Late Night City with me, Roy Bassnett, and it is Beyond the Dark, our weekly look at the world of the paranormal. And tonight, 
fascinating. We've had some great stories so far with historian Simon Entwistle. Now, before the break, we were talking about a spooky old place called Salmsbury Hall, which is a very nice place as well. It's not just known for its spookiness, but there are some strange stories that go with it. We know the backstory. Simon's explained that to us. But there have been some really strange tales of sightings in the modern day, haven't there, Simon? The White Lady is probably um, one of the most famous ghosts in Great Britain. Um, obviously, she lost her life under very, very, very sad circumstances. Uh, but some paranormal groups from all over Great Britain do go to Salisbury Hall to try and, and, and contact, if you will. And there are one or two photographs on the internet. But some modern sightings, there's been quite a few, really. And way back in 2006, a uh, police officer was patrolling the centre of Preston in his... Um, BMW squad car, uh, a very fast vehicle, actually. And he heard on his headset that a burglar was taking place in the village of Salmsbury. So therefore, it's half past four in the morning. He uh, actually went through four red lights in the town centre due to lack of traffic and kept his siren off. He was clocking up around 105 miles an hour in the BMW as he made his way from Preston City Centre up what's called the Preston New Road towards Salmsbury Hall. He mentioned at a later hearing that as he was about to go past the hall, he saw what he thought was a white fertilizer bag, the sort of fertilizer bags that farmers use to accelerate crop production. And he heard a bang on the front of the BMW, which shuttered the BMW. He slowed it down, put the hazard warnings on, and rushed back to the scene of impact, which is right outside Salisbury Hall. He looked over the wall into the ground of Salisbury Hall and rushed across the road to the left-hand side to look at the field opposite. There was nothing there at all. He then looked at the front of the radiator grill on the BMW, which was slightly concave. He contacted his superiors and they said, bring the vehicle back right away, which he did do. And the RTA, the road traffic accident team were there. And of course, these men are highly professional when it comes to road traffic accidents. Mm. And they said, it looks like you've hit a human being. You can see almost like the shape of the, the pelvis in the front of the vehicle. This young lad was deeply upset and by, uh, by daylight, um, the ground of Sarsby Hall were teeming with police and cadets. They searched all the undergrowth on both sides of the road. The grounds surrounded the area and contacted all the local hospitals. And there wasn't a single um, missing person or indeed RTA report of that period of time. It was put down simply to a sighting of the white lady. Now, I must say, Roy, my favorite story relating to her took place in 1878, where there was textile writing in that part of the world, and the army were called in to quell the textile writing. Um, the regiment chosen to look after that, that region was the 24th Regiment, the South Wales Borders, and their commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel John Pauline of the South Wales, had the regimental silver brought up from uh, Brecon and brought to Sarsby Hall, where he and just the senior staff officers were billeted. The colonel had uh, toasted the regiment, climbed into bed, and in the early hours of the morning, he heard sobbing. They thought, that's strange, not one of my men, sounds like a female to me. He opened the curtains and looked into the grounds of Sarsby Hall, and there, in between the horse chestnut and the yew tree, he saw what looked like a female figure wearing a long white gown. He got dressed very quickly. He rushed down the twisting staircase, ran over the lawns, and shouted, Mom, Mom, may I be of assistance to you, Mom? The figure slowly turned, and where there should have been a face was a hollow, hollow cavity. The colonel screamed. He was no coward. He had taken the life of many a Russian soldier in the Crimean War, but he was horrified. 
He ran back into the hall, rushed upstairs, and immediately reached for his British Army regulation hip flask and consumed the contents. <laughs> the following morning, he had breakfast the Harrison family who then owned the hall, and they laughed. Oh, Colonel, don't worry. You've seen the white lady, Lady Dorothea. The Colonel had no idea, but he was going to meet her personally. His regiment, the 24th, was sent overseas to South Africa three weeks later, where they joined Lord Chelsea's ill-fated number three column and invaded Zululand. And there, on the 22nd of January, 1879, beneath a rocky outcrop called Isandwanda at uh, Natal State, King Katsway, the Zulu king, unleashed his Zulu impis and wiped out the entire 24th regiment. It said the colonel formed a square before he was swamped by the Zulus and had a silent toast and a silent prayer to the White Lady of Sarsby Hall. Wow. It's incredible. I mean, it is. I know the part of the world well, and, you know, we've been up there to, to yes. Sarsby be in that. But away from that, Simon, what other parts? I mean, have you ever travelled down to Liverpool Way? Have you ever encountered any stories in this part of the world? Or is there anywhere else that you would like to tell us about? Well, uh, I'm always looking for stories because I'm uh, really a northern tour guide. Uh, Lancashire, Yorkshire, Cumbria are really my stomping ground. But yeah. I'm always looking for new material, always looking for new material, really. Uh, what I can tell you is there is a, a very, very big connection with the, um, the famous Jack the Ripper and the city of Liverpool. Um, of course, uh, we're looking at uh, the murders of uh, five local prostitutes in 1888, uh, in Whitechapel, uh, the, the sad murder of uh, Polly Ann Nichols, of, uh, of uh, Catherine Eddowes, Margaret Kelly, and, and indeed um, Anne Chapman. Mm. Uh, terrible, terrible murders, terrible murders. But each time one of these people lost their lives, a gentleman, a very wealthy man from Liverpool, the name of James Maybrick, was in the city every time. Maybrick uh, had a reputation for the ladies. And um, each time he came back to Lime Street, um, as he got off the, the train at Lime Street, he would probably see the billboards with another murder in the city of London. Um, quite a few people did actually point towards him. He was never actually interviewed by Scotland Yard. But in 1953, in his home in, in Toxteth in Liverpool, uh, they came across a very old diary, a very old diary. And as they looked for the diary, all these names of the prostitutes that were murdered in Whitechapel were mentioned in the diary. Mm. And everyone thought, my God, we've found him. We've actually found the Ripper. And of course, uh, he, he could confirm that he was actually in the city every single time a murder took place. Um, Ripperologists, as they call them, came from all over the world to look at this diary. And what was so deeply upsetting was the diary could be carbon dated back to the 1950s. It was obviously oh, a fake. Right, but yeah. Maybrick was in London every time a murder took place, and very near the Whitechapel area. Oh, we yeah. shall never, ever know. Yeah. I've got to say, uh, going back to the uh, paranormal stuff, earlier in the year, I went up to Edinburgh, and there is a spooky old place. And I, I did actually go on one of the, of the tours, and it was uh, into all the catacombs and the underground parts of Edinburgh. And one of the, uh, you might be familiar with it, Simon, the, you know, Burke and Hare. Oh, gosh, Because obviously yes. they yeah. were oh, yeah. based in that part of yeah. the world. And they told me, we went, the tour finished in this little chapel area. And there was a, uh, 
for want of a better term to use, like a crypt. Oh, yeah. Met- do you know what I'm going to say? It's the Mackenzie crypt, isn't That's it? That's it. Yeah, yeah. I, I know do, do, you know the, do you know the story of that? I do indeed. Oh, tell uh, us Mackenzie, that, please. Well, yeah. He was quite a nasty piece of work, actually. Um, I mean, again, uh, we look at Britain, the, the hatred between Catholics and Protestants, unbelievable. I mean, uh, uh, nowadays it doesn't bother me in the slightest I've got Catholic, French, Protestant, it doesn't bother me. But in those days, in the 1700s, it was taken very, very, very seriously. Uh, Mackenzie hated the Catholics and uh, was responsible for quite a few of them being uh, deported, murdered, and any chance he had, he would uh, um, literally, uh, you could say, spout his venom towards them mm. and was responsible for quite a few um, Catholic deaths in Edinburgh. Um, but he was also loved by the Protestants, would you believe? Mm-hmm. And uh, is buried in the, the, the very, very same churchyard where uh, Greyfriars Bobby is actually, not too far from, of all places, where J.K. Rowling wrote all those fabulous Harry Potter books. Mm-hmm. Uh, the crypt is quite unusual. It looks almost like a bandstand, really. Yeah. Um, it's locked for good reasons. But Mackenzie uh, was placed in a lead coffin on a trestle, uh, a good 15 feet beneath the, beneath the floor of the crypt, and um, then it was locked and secured, and remained locked and secured for a good 268 years. Um, in 1996, two local lads went into the cemetery. They'd had a good drink. Uh, they were both severely inebriated, and they thought, well, let's, 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 let's crack open this, uh, the, the lock on the Mackenzie tomb, which they did do. Uh, they got into the, the actual uh, tomb itself, and they found a trapdoor. Uh, they kicked the leaves away, and they lifted the trapdoor, and they made their way down these steps. Uh, it was like something from a Hammer horror film. They must have had a torch with mm. them, because there's no other way they could see what they were doing. And they found the lead coffin of Mackenzie. Um, they somehow unscrewed the lead screws and lifted the coffin lid. And for some strange reason, they removed Mackenzie's head. They then climbed up the stairs once again, out into the cemetery, and decided to use the head almost like a, not like a football, but almost like a ball. At the same time, a tour guide was entering the, the, uh, the cemetery with a group, and she realised that something very, very serious was taking place. And she said, look, boys, um, um, that looks quite interesting, actually. Uh, could you just wait there, and uh, I'll come back and see in about half an hour. Uh, I'd love to talk to you about this. Uh, she took the party away, and she immediately telephoned the police. The police arrived, arrested these two young lads, and, of course, the skull was placed back in the Mackenzie grave. But those two boys were in for a terrible, terrible time. Because within two years, both lads had died of mysterious ailments. They say it's the curse of the Mackenzie grave. By removing that man's head, they're removing a very, very evil character. And people do believe that somehow his spirit came back to wreak vengeance on those boys from the, from the, 19th, from the 20th century, sorry. Mm. but uh, very very uh, sad story that really yeah yeah there's millions of them I know that you could relate to us and that you know if people ever want to come along to your guided tour Simon where can they find out details about this well um, they can find me on www.tophattours.co.uk and I do have a coach from McGull on Saturday (laughs) Uh, um, brilliant uh, brilliant uh, party from uh, from Merseyside from McGull and um, they're going with what's called a Haunted Inns tour. 
uh, in the Ribble Valley, there are some beautiful old inns. When I say inns, dating back to the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries. Mm. And according to the National Press, Roy, we're losing 350 public houses a month in Great Britain. And some of them mm. have been with us for many centuries. And the whole idea of this tour is it's a minibus tour. Uh, and sometimes we use the large coaches. We'll have a pretty large coach on, on uh, Saturday. I think there's 27 people booked in that one. We'll visit... Um, these lovely old villages, these great old pubs, they all have ghost stories, they all have murders and mysteries, etc. And indeed, one of them is called the Hark to Bounty, 1721. And upstairs is the old courtrooms. It's such an isolated place, isolated part of the old West Riding of Yorkshire, that if you committed the crime uh, right at the 1970s, you were taken to the Hark to Bounty and tried upstairs. And mm. we have a whole variety of stories there, Roy, but as you quite rightly say, I'm constantly adding to them. Constantly adding to them. Yeah, yeah. There's certainly no shortage of places where you can find more material as well. Yes, it's <laughs> it's fascinating stuff. Well, Simon Entwistle, absolute pleasure to hear your voice again and hear the tales that you've regaled to us this evening here on Late Night City. Uh, thank you, Roy. It's great to talk to you again. Uh, it's lovely to, to hear your voice. Thank you.